Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello. This week we're going to try to stimulate your senses. We'll be demonstrating how taste and flavour perception works. If you want to have a go too, you'll need some chewing gum and some icing sugar. We'll also meet someone for whom making friends is, well, a matter of taste. Whenever I hear something or whenever I see something, my brain translates that into a taste. And if I don't like the taste of something, I don't particularly take to that person. And the placebo effect, trick or treatment? How does it work and is it ethical for doctors to use it? Plus, we'll also hear how the venom of one of the world's deadliest snakes contains painkillers that are more powerful than morphine. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. It is Sunday, October the 7th, and this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and I'm joined by Martha Henriquez. Now, most people regard taste as a very simple sense. You put something in your mouth, and your tongue tells you the flavour, right? Well, not quite, because it turns out that how you perceive taste is a very intricate and complicated relationship that combines several different senses. Apart from just your tongue's taste buds... Food texture, smell, sight, and even the sounds around you affect an eating experience. And to explain exactly how, with us is Professor Barry Smith from the University of London. Hello, Barry. Hello. So begin by taking us on a flavour trip, if you like, of what actually happens when we eat something. Well, as, as you just said, people think they're getting most of the experience of flavour from their tongue. But in fact, the tongue gives you very little. It just gives you salt, sweet, sour, bitter, savoury. Now we think metallic as well. You can taste blood in your mouth, that metal taste. But think of all the things that you are used to experiencing. You can taste strawberry or onion or melon or mint or cinnamon. And we don't have receptors for those. So that tells you that you're getting it from somewhere else. And most of it is coming from smell. But as well as smell, you've also got touch. There's the creaminess of something in the mouth. There's how stale it is, if it crumbles rather differently. But think of something like pepper. We like to put black pepper on our food, but we don't have taste receptors for pepper. In fact, what that is doing is irritating the trigeminal nerve. And it's the one that becomes very sore at the bridge of their nose. It starts to sort of ring bells and, and, and be stingy when you have mustard that's too hot. Horseradish. Effect. Horseradish, right. And it also makes peppermint or spearmint taste cool in the mouth, even though there's no temperature change at all. So you've at least got touch, taste and smell combining always to give you what you get as flavour. So when we put something in there, um, the heat from your mouth imparts some energy to the molecules of food you've put in. So some of them are going to drift off and go up your nose, up the back of your throat then, and, and so you'll get this retro aroma experience. Actually, you have two senses of smell. So you can smell something externally from the environment, and then when you put something in your mouth and those volatiles go up through the nasal pharynx and start to activate the very same receptors in the nose you will maybe get a very different experience. So the brain pays attention to the difference between airflow coming in or going out, coming from the mouth or coming from the world. So think of a smelly cheese like a poisse. It smells really rather <laughs> disgusting. And yet when you put it in your mouth, delicious, lovely. And that shows you the aroma is behaving differently depending on direction of flow. A relative of mine said to me the other day, 
there was one cheese that he didn't actually have to throw away. He bought some stinking bishop, and he said, I could not bring myself to eat it. But if he but had, if, maybe... But it tastes maybe, fantastic, yeah, doesn't it? Exactly. Why is that? Then? Why do we, we get this very nauseating affront when you open the packet and you think, oh, am I really going to put that in my mouth? But then when it goes in, it is actually gorgeous. Well, it is, it is because of the difference between the way the, um, the very same odours are treated depending on whether they came retronasally from the mouth or orthonasally from the nose. And there's another way in which they can mismatch. Think of coffee. Smell mm. of freshly brewed coffee is wonderful, but aren't you always just a little disappointed that the taste in your mouth is not quite the same? And so it's that's a disparity, that's yeah, true. Yeah, there's a disparity. But, but there's one food where we have exactly the same sniffing from the outside and, and experiencing from the inside, and that's chocolate. And that's probably why it's a wonder food, because you get what you expect and you're very satisfied. Think about chocolate is that it does fulfill or tick all those boxes that you mentioned, isn't it? Because you have the texture, it melts in the mouth, so it changes from being something hard with that rough texture into something smooth that easily glides over your tongue. It's got an intense sugar punch that it packs, the same for fat. So there's all those experiences plus those aromas going up the back of your throat. Yeah, I, I, think, I think everything is, as you say, ticks all the boxes. And also, you notice when you're eating chocolate truffles, so full of butter that the, the very smooth feel actually bluffs the brain into thinking there's something cool and sensuous in the mouth. And it's actually because it's, it's rubbing the somatosensory receptors in a slightly different way. It's more like being stroked than being rubbed. <laughs> well, they do say that chocolate does, does play a part in, in love and that kind of thing, don't they? Um, what about actually using that knowledge then? Are food manufacturers saying, well, we know how chocolate does it. We know it's irresistible. So can we confer that experience on other things so that people will embrace a pot noodle, even something like that, with the same alacrity as a chocolate bar? Well, that's right. I mean, people in, in the food industry know this stuff very well. And they know that, say, the creaminess of something can affect how sweet it tastes. So perhaps you can put less sugar in by making something taste creamier. And equally, when you've got uh, low-fat yogurts, people didn't want to eat them because they thought, hmm, they just don't have that substance to them. So if you can have something which is still um, giving you the same stroking and the same feeling, uh, maybe that will slightly improve the flavor of what you're eating. Although we do, I think, now um, believe there are fat receptors in the mouth, or at least fatty acid receptors. So the brain is only bluffed so long, and then eventually it wants the real fat content. What about sound? Because uh, there was a study I read a number of years ago where, I, I don't know if this is apocryphal or if it's true, a supermarket playing different music in the wine section felt they could influence people's choices of wine. People were presumably imagining what that wine would taste like in the context of that music, which is why they were changing their, their minds about what they wanted to buy when they played French music or Italian music. They didn't even have to, have to imagine. I mean, the beautiful thing in this study was that you had... Uh, Umpapa German music and French accordion music and the, the percentage of French and German wine varied according to the time at which different music was played. But when you ask people in the checkout, um, why did you buy this wine? Oh, I just thought this would be a nice thing to drink. Um, was it the music that influenced you? What music? So sound, sound can have a, a big clue, but the best sound effect on, uh, on flavour is actually collaborator and friend of mine, uh, the psychologist Charles Spence, who works on this, he won the Ig Nobel Prize for his works, work on uh, potato chips. So if you leave them out for a couple of days and they go stale, you put them in your mouth, not so fresh. But, not if, you, but if you put headphones on people and you amplify the high frequency sound of their own crunching back to them, the crisps taste fresh. Oh, and, well, so and, you get people to, to yeah. eat them and play the sounds back and they say that the crisps are, are, are fresh. They can't tell the, the 
they're stale. They can't tell that they're stale, which shows you, and, and he wants to know whether that makes um, tasting stale more of a sound experience than a taste experience. It's also the reason why the manufacturers make the bag so noisy, that awful rustling noise. It's because it's bluffing the brain. It's getting the brain to think fresh, fresh, fresh. So is that the reason why crisp bags have become cracklier or food packaging in general I think has become cracklier in recent years. Cracklier and in fact there was one bag that was so noisy that the decibel level was banned because <laughs> it was just too intrusive. What was in the bag? Uh, that was that was crisps as well. That was that was in Latin America, but it was eventually outlawed because it was just far too loud. We had a question of the week a few years ago where someone said they were crunching their breakfast cereal and they would listen to our show as a podcast. NakedScientist.com slash podcast, incidentally. If you have these earbud earphones in, he said, his breakfast cereal was amplified because of this is something called the occlusion effect, where if you create a sort of resonant cavity in your ear between the earbud and your eardrum, things get louder, especially sounds coming from within your own head. So based on what you've just said then, do you think his breakfast cereal was becoming a more intense experience for him because he could hear it more loudly? It was it was um, more intense in one way, but less discernible in another, because we know that when you're hearing white noise, as on an aircraft, it actually reduces your ability to discriminate flavours. So therefore, they give people noise-reducing headphones in business class, and, and the food seems to taste better. But it's also why Heston Blumenthal, who's been doing a lot of work with British Airways, is starting to put more spice into the food, because as I said before, spice is uh, irritating the trigeminal nerve. It's not got from the tongue. And that's not affected by noise in the ears. And so people are beginning to say that the food is tastier. And it's all down to it being a bit more zingy. It's more zingy. And uh, if you boost one of the senses, it tends to have a knock-on effect on the others. So you can, you can modulate the overall experience by affecting one or other of the sensory inputs. So if you give people a spicy curry in the air, do they report that the aircraft is less noisy? No, the noise, will st- the noise will still be there, but, they- but they'll actually enjoy the taste a lot more. And I think that's actually important for the elderly as well, because we know that as smell diminishes when you get older, it's going to be uh, increasingly difficult to get people to enjoy their food. But if you give them more trigeminal stimulation or you give them other sensations at the same time that they're having the input in the mouth, then they'll still have flavours they enjoy. You've um, brought in some individually wrapped sweets in a crackly bag, I'm pleased, so they must be extremely fresh, or at least my brain will be fooled into thinking they are. What are you going to do with these? Okay, so I'm going to ask Martha if she'll, she'll demonstrate this. So what I want her to do is I want her to hold her nose so she talks as though she's got a bad cold, and if she keeps her nose tightly pinched like that, so she's, she's really not taking in any air, I'm going to ask her to put one of these jelly beans now into her mouth, keeping her nose held tight. So put the jelly bean in the mouth, keep the nose tightly closed, that's it, and chew and chew and just chew. And what do you taste? Probably some sweetness, a little bit of sourness maybe, but certainly sweetness. Now, now let go the nose. Mm. Yeah, I I was getting sort of jelly texture, but really not much taste at all. But as soon as I let my nose go, you get all that berry flavour. That was a blackcurrant right. flavour coming right. coming through. So that shows you that the fruity flavour that you now get is actually mm. coming from the nose and not from the tongue at all. So it's a very easy way that everybody can try this and demonstrate for themselves what's actually happening. Smell is a huge part, maybe 80% of what we call, what we ordinarily call taste. We've got some more tricks that Barry can show us later in the programme. I discovered that when I was very little and I was trying to eat Brussels sprouts actually and hated them and I found if I pinched my nose I could I could pretty much swallow anything. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Martha Henriquez.
Different senses mix information to give us our sense of the world, but some people have sensory information even more mixed up. I'm a gustatory synesthete. It's a mixing of the senses. Whenever I hear something or whenever I see something, my brain translates that into a taste. So not only do I see something or hear something, I taste it as well. This has a profound effect on my everyday life. I mean, it dictates really the people I like, the people I don't like, because there's emotions involved here as well. Um, if I don't like the taste of something, I don't particularly take to that person. best analogy I can draw is if uh, somebody's got a, a mysterious smell about them or something like that. I have to read a lot in my work, and uh, I've had to develop a, a method of speed reading whereby I can just zigzag down the page because there's no way I could linger on every word because every word carries a taste. One of the byproducts, my brain always thinks that it's eating, so therefore it's always pumping stomach acid down there to digest food that simply isn't there. Every person I meet has a taste. Everything I hear has a taste. Everything I see has a taste. That was James Wonerton, the president of the UK Synesthesia Association, describing what it's like to have the condition of synesthesia, which is actually a lot more common than you might think. One person in every 25 has it. But what do we taste like to him? The name of your show, Naked Science, it's got a very strong taste for me. It's... Um probably best described as having the, the, the texture and taste of onions and gravy. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's quite nice. That's a relief. Duncan Carmichael, a synesthesia researcher at the University of Edinburgh, is with us. Duncan, what's happening in James's brain to produce these strange sensory experiences? Hi, Martha. Well, we think synesthesia is caused by a type of crosstalk between areas of the brain which wouldn't normally communicate with each other. So in most people, there's no real functional connection between areas of the brain that process different forms of sensory input. They don't activate each other. But in people with synesthesia, for example, there is clear evidence that these areas of the brain do communicate. So if we take the example of James in the previous clip, when he reads or hears words, they activate not only the language part of his brain, but also the part of his brain which deals with taste. Whereas in people without synesthesia, those parts of the brain are very separate and wouldn't activate each other at all. So it's this kind of cross-activation between what are normally separate brain areas that seems to give rise to this sort of synesthetic experience, really. And so what's our current knowledge about the neural basis of synesthesia? Well, evidence is starting to emerge that supports this idea of cross-activation. There's some functional MRI studies that show this simultaneous activity does indeed occur, actually. So colour letter synesthetes, for example, when they read black and white letters, the colour regions of their brain become active. So in effect, they're experiencing colour without actually seeing it. And there is more recent work which has looked at whether there are differences in the underlying neural structure of synesthetes' brains, and indeed this appears to be the case. So the areas which show this simultaneous functional connectivity, this cross-activation, there's more white matter connectivity between those areas in synesthetes, and so we can almost say that synesthetes' brains are wired up differently to non-synesthetes. And is this a consistent phenomenon? Is it consistent within an individual? And is there any consistency between individuals? For example, is a certain word associated with a certain taste or colour, for example, in different people? Or uh, does each person have their own individual take on it? Um, people often have their own individual takes. I mean, there is some kind of themes which do occur. I mean, for example, A often appears to be red. Um, and there is patterns which emerge but often people will have will have their own individual um, experiences often uh, members of the same family with who experience synesthesia will will disagree on the colors of letters they see there is some kind of commonality but often it's a very personal experience and is this something that varies with culture 
Um, I'm not so sure, really. Someone did a study in Australia that took all the kind of books that had been published with different colours and looked to see whether there was themes that emerged, where the uh, the books that people read as, as children linked to their uh, synesthetic experience. And I think that didn't turn out to be the case, actually. What can this tell us about the neurotypical brain? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though synesthesia is quite an unusual phenomenon, it can tell us quite a lot about how the normal brain processes information. I mean, the normal kind of the normal adult cortex is quite kind of specialised and quite modular. So the part of your brain that deals with, with vision, for example, only responds to input from the visual system. And the part of your brain which deals with auditory input will only deal with input from the ears. But in synesthesia, this doesn't appear to be the case. There's crosstalk between these different areas. And this may tell us quite a lot about how the brain actually develops. So when you're born, these specialisations don't exist. They develop over time and over the, the first few years of your life based on the input you receive. So what we think the study of synesthesia can give us is a real insight into how this specialisation occurs because the synesthetic brain is obviously uh, quite different and de- potentially develops along a different route. You know, So why do people with synesthesia retain this capacity to have communication between different brain areas, which... which people without synesthesia lose as they get older, you know. And so what do we know about uh, the inheritance and the genetics of this condition? People with synesthesia, typically 40% of them have a first-degree relative with synesthesia in their family. And there seems to be particular inheritance patterns. For example, mothers are quite likely to pass synesthesia on to either sons or daughters, whereas fathers seem to pass it on to daughters only. One of the studies we're running in Edinburgh at the moment are really trying to identify genes that might be linked to the development of synesthesia. Some work's been done in this area um, to date, but not very much. We, we've we identified a few kind of areas on chromosomes or a, f- a few areas that contain hundreds and hundreds of genes that might be, might be implicated in synesthesia, but there's no specific genes that have emerged that may be directly linked. And that's what we're trying to do with our current study is recruit a lot of people with, with colour grapheme synesthesia, so people who see letters or numbers in colour, and sample their DNA and see which genes might be specifically linked to the development of synesthesia. So that's, that's one thing we're trying to do at the moment. We suspect there's a collection of genes that are definitely involved in this process, but to date nobody's had the ability to identify them. That's one thing we're trying to do with this particular study. Duncan Carmichael at the University of Edinburgh. Martha, thank you very much. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Martha Enriquez. Still to come, we'll be investigating the placebo effect. How can a medicine that contains absolutely no active ingredients still improve a patient's symptoms? But first, though, let's take a look at some of this week's other leading science breakthroughs. A study that caught my eye this week, Martha, comes from Sylvie Diachot, who is a researcher at CNRS in Valbonne in France. And uh, this is a paper in Nature this week, actually. And they have found that one of the most venomous snakes on Earth, the black mamba, may contain in its venom a chemical which is as powerful as morphine as a painkiller but doesn't have any of the negative side effects. What they did was to take the venom and they separated it into all of the different fractions, these are the different components in the venom, because venom doesn't just contain one chemical, it contains many. And they tested these individual fractions of the venom against cells in a dish to look for whether or not the venom could block a certain kind of channel called an ASIC, an acid-sensing ion channel, which researchers know are really critical for detecting, amongst other things, pain. And they found these two chemicals, these two proteins, they've called them mambalgins because of where they come from, mambalgin 1 and mambalgin 2. They found that if they put these proteins into the skin of a mouse, they could very profoundly abolish the ability to sense pain. And when they injected them around the spinal cord in the same way that you would inject, say, an epidural for having a baby, they got the same very potent 
relief from pain in these animals. And the interesting thing is that although the effect is as powerful as morphine, it doesn't work in the same way as morphine. It's obviously using a totally different set of nerve pathways, and they prove that by injecting drugs that block morphine, and they don't block this. Why this is critical is that it may actually highlight new ways to go in and target the pain pathway. I don't think anyone's saying we go along and we inject people with mamba venom right now. This would not be good. But the fact that we've identified by this paper these two different ways of targeting the pain pathway, which was previously unexploited, suggests that we might be able to make drugs that mimic the action of these proteins and are therefore very effective painkillers. Well, that'll be very good news for sufferers of chronic pain, perhaps, in hospitals at the moment, um, because the uh, addictive effects of opiate drugs are something that would definitely be best to avoid. Yes, indeed, and that was one of the other things they point out in their paper. I'm glad you raised that, because they do say that these drugs showed, or these proteins showed, none of the tolerising effects of morphine. When you put someone on an opioid drug like morphine, you, over time, have to give more and more of the agent to get the same effect, and it develops tolerance, and it also damps down the respiratory system. It can make people go into respiratory arrest. These agents did none of those things, which is why they seem so exciting. That is exciting. Well, here's a completely different story looking at the risk-taking behaviour of adolescents. So uh, risk-taking behaviour such as uh, having unprotected sex or drink driving is commonly associated with the adolescent period of life, although not exclusively. And so Agnieszka Timula and her colleagues at New York University wanted to see about the root of this risk-taking behaviour. So they devised two studies which were um, gambling experiments. So they had a group of teenagers and a group of adults. And when these were given $5. They said you can keep this $5 or you can engage in a gamble. You might win a lot more money or you might come home with nothing. And the adults, when they knew all the odds, were actually likely to take much more of a risk than the adolescents were, which is perhaps counterintuitive because the adolescents are the one who actually engage in risky activities in life more generally. It does seem strange. So you give the information, you've got a 50% chance of winning or something, and the adults are more likely to go for it than the teenagers. Absolutely. In a second study, the adults and the teenagers were given a similar bet, but they were given much less information about the odds of that bet. And in those circumstances, the adults were a lot more cautious. So the teenagers behaved exactly as they would have done if they'd known the odds, and they were just as likely to put their money at risk, um, whereas the adults were much less likely to do so. Oh, that's interesting. So basically, the teenagers are not really basing their decision much on um, on the actual overall risk. They're basing it on whether they got the information or not. Absolutely, which of course has implications for um, educational programmes, for example. Um, how do we cut down on STD transmission among young people? Well, it seems from this research that um, a good answer would be increased educational programmes give the young people, the adolescents, the information that they need and they will actually be a lot less risky than the adults were. Sounds good, Martha, but the problem is at the moment we've got record levels of teenage pregnancy, we've got record levels of sexually transmitted infection rates, so clearly there is still a lot of risk-taking going on, despite really quite good campaigns to tell people. Absolutely, and that indicates perhaps that these campaigns just aren't reaching the people that they need to. It seems to be a question of access more than anything else. Thank you very much.
Now, a diagnostic test for newborn babies has been developed. It can screen for more than 3,500 genetic disorders within 50 hours. And this is a very big improvement when you compare it with currently used methods. Now, 3% of newborns will have a genetic disorder. And for some of these disorders, the earlier that you start treating, the better the overall prognosis. With us to discuss this new test, which has been developed with the help of a company called Illumina, who have their European base in Essex, is Dr Stephen Kingsmore. He's from the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, and he's with us. Hello, Stephen. Hello. What was the problem you are actually trying to solve with this? Let me give you an example. So baby Stephanie was born in March 2012. She was a bit small at birth, but looked pretty normal. However, one hour after she was born, she started to have seizures, epileptic fits, and so she was transferred to an intensive care unit. And for five weeks, uh, pretty much everything was attempted to stop these seizures, but without any effect. In that period of time, her parents had tremendous anguish. They had feelings of guilt, and they had false hope that their baby was going to be saved. And all the while, Nobody could tell them exactly what was going on. Now, eventually, after five weeks, the doctors got together with the parents. They said, we think this is hopeless. And the parents, after some thought, decided to withdraw support. And baby Stephanie died that day. Now, let's contrast that with after the test. So now, let's say baby Stephanie was going to be born in December of this year. She'd have exactly the same first day of life. Two days later, she would have received, or her parents would have received, a definitive diagnosis that she had a mutation in a gene called BRAT1 and that tragically there was no way to save her life. What that would have meant for her parents is that, first of all, they wouldn't have been guilty. This was not because mum had a glass of wine during pregnancy. They would have known that uh, it was hopeless. They would have had a, a clear answer. They would have known their risk of having another baby with the same thing, and they would have been able to bond with their baby, move the baby out of the intensive care unit, uh, be able to say their goodbyes, bring in their pastor or priest, bring in their grandparents, and there would have been a sense of parental empowerment and proper goodbyes. So that's the difference before and after this test was developed. Sounds wonderful. How does it actually work? Well, it's pretty simple. We decode the entire human genome using a very speedy sequencer. So that's 3.1 billion letters. That's the equivalent of a manuscript 300 feet high. And we do that in each baby. We do that in a day, and then it takes another day for us to take that information, process it, and link it to whether or not the baby had one of the 3,500 genetic diseases. The Human Genome Project, which sequenced one human, took years to do it, and you're doing that in a day. How on earth are you doing that? This is a technology that was developed at uh, Oxford University almost a decade ago, but it's been getting better and better, and we're at the point now where we can decode a baby's entire genome in roughly a day. I mean, it's just the scale has gone up remarkably so that we have literally billions of chemical reactions occurring that we can monitor in real time and churn out hundreds of billions of very short fragments of the human genome code. And then we put these together to get the whole piece. It's like making a jigsaw puzzle with, say, 600 billion pieces. But how do you know which of the changes in the DNA are the crucial ones that are giving that child its problem? 
It's been a huge problem because only a tiny fraction of doctors, pediatric geneticists, actually know which test to order. There are 3,500 to choose from, and most physicians won't have heard of most of these diseases. And so we built some software that allows a regular pediatrician to plug in what's going on in the baby. In Stephanie, she was small, and she was having seizures. So the doctor clicks those two boxes, and the computer program matches that information to just the points in the genome where there are 89 genes that can cause this in a baby. And in that way, instead of having to scour the whole genome, we're able to focus in on the specific areas where if there is a genetic cause, that's where it would be pinpointed. And can it learn to recognise new disorders as more are discovered? Because the power of this is obviously the rapid diagnosis. The downside is that it only answers the question you ask it. Has the child got one of these conditions we know about? That's a good question, and I don't have an easy answer. But if you look at the situation today where it takes two months to look at a single gene, a single point in the genome for a single disease, and you compare that with the ability in two days to look at 3,500, this is still a phenomenal advance. And building it out so that it sort of self-learns is, is definitely feasible, but not straightforward. And is this widely available? Will the average hospital maternity or, or maybe specialist unit have this sort of technology available to it in the near future? Well, I should say that our, our paper is a proof of concept. We only looked at about half a dozen babies, and so this really is just a first report. A lot more needs to be done to understand what are the right places to put this in uh, intensive care units. It's expensive. It costs over £8,000 to test a single baby. Uh, and the, the sort of infrastructure is not something you find commonly in hospitals. But we hope by the end of this year, so Illumina are shipping us uh, our new genome analyzer for the work we did in the, in the manuscript, we actually had to get the DNA from each baby and then courier it across the Atlantic to Essex where the DNA sequence was generated and then they loaded that on a hard drive and shipped it back across the Atlantic to Kansas City where we crunched the information. So our goal by um, December is to have our own instrument in our own hospital and start to build experience. We really think that maybe next year it will be possible for some places in the United States and probably also in Great Britain to be referral centers. You don't necessarily have to have the baby in your intensive care unit. You can certainly ship the DNA to a, a central location where this service could be offered. Super. Well, thank you for joining us to tell us about it, Stephen. It sounds very exciting. That was Dr. Stephen Kingsmore. He's from the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, and he published that research this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Martha. Here's another interesting story. Marisa Karov and her colleagues at Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich have found a way to turn bodily cells involved in blood barrier maintenance in the brain straight into neurons. And this is novel because normally it's been possible to take a bodily cell, take it back to an earlier stage in development and then direct it down a new path towards a different cell type. But this is doing it directly straight from one cell type to another. So that means potentially you could do it in situ. So if you had a bit of the brain that had suffered some kind of injury or the cells there had broken down and you knew which bit of the brain that was, you could go into just that area and convert 
healthy cells there to turn into new nerve cells in the right place. Absolutely. Uh, and they would restore the problem. Absolutely. And uh, that's why this is really um, exciting. Perhaps further down the line, this uh, kind of treatment could be used to treat neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. So that's something that they're very much looking at in the future. For the moment, though, they've been doing these experiments um, in a dish in culture. Um, and what they did was they got a virus to introduce two new genes into these cells, um, the genes called MASH1 and SOX2. And when they they were introduced together, the cells started showing the cellular structures, um, the morphology, the shape, um, and even the behaviour of neuronal cells. So when you put them uh, in a culture with some ordinary neural cells, they started interacting with them and performing electrical signalling, just like they were, you know, natural, ordinary nerve cells. But they haven't tried this in the brain in situ yet. They've done this just in the dish. That's right. So obviously human testing is much further down the line, but obviously that is where they will be aiming to take this research because the applications are very exciting for these neurodegenerative diseases. Indeed they are. Thank you, Martha. Well, also this week, scientists have discovered how to turn stem cells and even skin cells in mice into eggs in the ovary, and those eggs can be fertilised and turned into baby mice which are themselves fertile. So this is a paper published in the journal Science this week. It's by Mitanori Setu, who's at Kyoto University. And what he and his colleagues did was to initially take what are called ES cells, embryonic stem cells. These are the very early cells that are going to form most of the tissues in the body. They take those cells out and then they express in them two genes, which are called PRDM1 and another called DPPA3, these are normally switched on in the cells which are destined to become the future ovary or testis in a developing fetus. And what they found when they took these cells and made effectively a surrogate ovary by taking some of the supporting non-egg cells from ovary tissue, putting them all together and then implanting them under the capsule or the surface of the kidney in a recipient animal. After a few days, these egg cells had developed and after about a month they were able to take these cells out from this surrogate ovary and they had cells that to all intents and purposes biochemically and visually appeared to be eggs and when they mixed them with mouse sperm they could fertilize them and they turned into embryos and when they implanted those embryos into the uterus of, of a recipient surrogate mother mouse about four percent of them developed into fertile mice and those mice themselves had healthy pups, showing that these were functional eggs that were capable of producing live, healthy offspring. And of course, the implication of this is that if we can make this safe and reproducible, if you've got a human who, for some reason, has lost her own ovaries because of, say, a treatment or a disease, then you could potentially make new eggs for that woman and then she can actually have her own biological and genetically derived children rather than having to rely on donor eggs from another individual. And how far in the future do you think uh, this will be? Uh, are we looking at five years or ten years before this uh, can be helping infertile women? Uh, yeah, very good question. The thing with this is you've got to make sure it's safe because anything that involves stem cells has an inherent risk because when you're turning cells into very immature or unspecialised cells, there's a risk that they could grow uncontrollably, a bit like a cancer. And so it's very important to make sure that the 
approach is safe. And that's going to be the priority. The other thing which is hidden away at the end of the paper, which is intriguing, is that they don't just do this with embryonic stem cells. They also report doing it with what are called IPS cells or induced pluripotent cells. So this is the the real uh, encouraging news because you could take, say, a skin cell and by adding the right genes to it, you can make it turn into an unspecialised induced pluripotent cell. And then using their technique, you can turn it into an egg cell. So it won't just work in embryonic stem cells. It could potentially work with adult skin cells too. But we've got to make sure it's safe. Fantastic. Thank you. Climate change could be altering the migration patterns of seabirds. And a team led by the University of Glasgow is studying one seabird in particular. They're called prions, a type of petrel whose beaks filter food from the sea. They're especially fond of tiny crustaceans known as copepods. Last year, over 200,000 prions were discovered dead or dying on a New Zealand shore after a major storm. But the species' decline has also been linked to failing food supplies, resulting from changes in the climate. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson went to meet Dr James Grecian, one of the researchers working on the project, to find out more about these seabirds. Prions are small seabirds, about the same size as a puffin. They've got a similar wingspan, but much lighter. They're only a couple of hundred grams. So very, very small birds, and they breed in large colonies, sometimes up to maybe two million pairs around the Southern Ocean in places like New Zealand, the Falkland Islands. But because these birds are so abundant, they're they're really major consumers in ecosystems. And so it's really important that if these birds are being influenced by climate change, then there's a whole range of other species that could be impacted by climate change. I mean, if copepods are moving and birds can't follow them, maybe fish can't too, and that has implications for global fish stocks. How has the sort of abundance of copepods affected these particular birds? Plankton species are very, very susceptible to changes in temperature. So as the oceans warm, they'll move towards the poles. For species that target copepods, this could be a massive change. So if your main prey species is moving, you're going to have to adapt and change to try and follow them. And what I'm trying to work out is whether or not they can. So how do you do that? Firstly, we can look at stable isotopes, non-radioactive isotopes in your body that you absorb as you're feeding. And they are relatively predictable. And so we can use that as a guide to try and understand where copepods are. So if we can sample prion feathers, we can look at the isotopes in those feathers and work out what the prions have been eating. We know it's copepods. We can try and work out where those copepods were and therefore where the prions were when they were eating them. And notice you've got something that looks remarkably like some feathers in your pocket. Yeah, so I've got a a few samples of feathers here from a bird that was sampled in Gough Island in the middle of the southern Atlantic. And these are um, feathers sampled from a bird that was killed by skewers, and they kill prions and eat prions. And so round colonies in the Southern Ocean, you find big piles of dead prions. And it's a really, really good resource for us to, we can go along, we can pick up and we can sample lots of birds that we know were killed on that colony, so we know are probably from that colony. And if we then use those feathers and analyse those feathers, we can get an idea of where that bird was before it was killed. This feather I've got in my hand here is dark around the outside because it's one of the outer primary feathers. And so this was probably grown on the the centre of the wintering grounds. We believe that primary molt, so the molt of the main flight feathers in a bird, starts with the innermost primary and works towards the outermost primary. And that starts as they leave the breeding colony. So if we sample feathers from the outside of the wing, those are the feathers that are from the wintering grounds, and those will give us an idea of what the bird was feeding on. So what sort of chemicals, or what signature in effect, are you trying to get from a feather like this one here? We put it through a mass spectrometer, working with the Scottish University's Environmental Research Centre in East Kilbride, and the two elements that we're mainly interested in are carbon and nitrogen. 
We're interested in different isotopes of carbon and nitrogen. So we're interested in heavy carbon and heavy nitrogen, carbon-13 and nitrogen-15. And they will accumulate in body tissues. So, for example, in nitrogen, the heavy nitrogen is much harder to metabolize than light nitrogen. And so as you're eating things, your body will withhold will store, if you like, the heavy nitrogen because it's much easier to get rid of the lighter ones because it's easier to metabolise. And so for animals that forage very, very high up the food chain, there will have been this build-up in nitrogen or heavy nitrogen in their tissues. And so we can look at the ratio of nitrogen, of heavy nitrogen in their tissues, and that will give us some idea of where the bird's been foraging. And then you can tell how far they're moving as a result of climate change moving their source of food. Exactly. The other isotope they're interested in is carbon, and carbon is much better as an idea of, of spatial differences because it's due to baseline productivity. So regions of the ocean that are very productive will have different carbon signatures to areas of the ocean that are less productive. And it's actually quite nice in the, in the Southern Ocean, because of the way that the ocean fronts, the subtropical fronts and polar fronts build up, there's actually a, a relatively predictable gradient in carbon. So if we look at the carbon isotopes, heavy carbon isotopes in our feathers, we can, to an extent within various confidences, get an idea of where along the Southern Ocean that bird was wintering. So what we want to do is we want to try and get a, a baseline to try and look at what the isotopes mean in space. And we can do that through tracking data. We can try and correlate the two to see what isotopes are associated with what areas in the wintering grounds. But one of the key things with using the isotope data is that we've got museum specimens from as early as 1871. So we can compare the isotopes in feathers today, in 2012, with birds that was, were killed on colonies 140 years ago. And you could match that up with climate data. Hopefully that's exactly what we're going to try and do. That will give us some idea of how much the birds may have moved in the wintering areas that they're using, which could well be due to climatic change. James Grecian from the University of Glasgow talking to Sue Nelson. And you can hear a longer version of that interview in the Planet Earth podcast. It's on our website or at Planet Earth online. Thank you, Martha. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Martha Henriquez. Now, returning to our theme this week, which is tricks of the mind and how the brain works, in a minute we'll find out why names are so easy to forget and we'll also find out how the placebo effect comes about. But before that, we'll return to Barry Smith, who's with us for this week's programme. And you've got another little trick for us. Yes, so Martha's been chewing some minty chewing gum and I hope by now the mintiness has disappeared. Yes, and it's going a bit cardboardy and generally not very nice. OK, so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to take it out of your mouth and roll it in this little mound of icing sugar that I've got in front of you. And if you just pop that back in and have a chew on it... Choking on some icing sugar. Tell me how it tastes <laughs> now. Just keep chewing away for a moment or two. So what we're, we're really investigating is the way that one sense has an impact on another. So here we're talking about how taste might affect smell. Mm. Yes, it's definitely tasting newer again. And uh, yeah, the mintiness is, is coming back. So the mintiness has come back. And that's amazing because there is no mint in icing sugar. So that's a strange effect. What, what you're getting is the fact that when you combine the sugar with the uh, odour in your mouth, you get something super additive that's more than the sum of the parts. You're not getting them both together. You're getting the sugar boosting your ability to detect mint. And the mint seems to resume its presence. Does this manifest anywhere else in, in the food industry? Do 
other manufacturers use this effect to enhance other flavors. Yes, and they do it often with smell to taste going in the other direction. So when you smell vanilla, people often say it smells sweet. And we know that if you're tasting a liquid, say, and you get a vanilla aroma with it, it will taste sweeter. And that's in fact, why vanilla ice cream is much better to make than anything else because you can use less sugar to produce it because you've got the vanilla smell to give us the sweet experience. You can legitimately argue it's a diet ice cream. It's a diet ice cream. <laughs> Barry Smith uh, is with us for the programme. He'll be back answering all of your questions which are flooding in later in the programme. Martha. The placebo effect is the reported improvement in a patient's condition in response to their own expectation that a drug or treatment will make them better. Even giving a person a pill containing sugar and nothing else can still produce powerful pain-killing effects if the person believes it's an analgesic. So what's going on in the brain to make this happen? I began by speaking with Harvard-based research fellow in psychiatry, Karen Jensen. The first study that provided the biological evidence for the placebo effect was done in the 70s by a researcher called Levine. And he was able to show that he could block the placebo effect by giving people an antagonist for opioids. Opioid antagonists prevent opioid chemicals, for example, painkilling drugs like codeine and morphine, from binding to their receptors in the brain. This acts to lower the sensation of pain in the body. Levine showed that the placebo effect was also reduced when these opioid receptors were blocked, meaning that the analgesic placebo effect involves these chemical receptors just as much as chemical painkillers do. There are, however, some interesting differences in the brain during placebo and active analgesia treatments. Brain imaging studies by Jensen and her colleagues showed that the prefrontal cortex, the outermost layer of the front part of the brain, seems to play a stronger role in placebo treatments. When you compare a real drug to placebo, very similar networks in the brain are activated but the prefrontal cortex is uniquely activated during placebo analgesia as compared to morphine, for example. This might represent expectancy effects. So if there is an expectancy for pain relief, that expectation might be processed there in the lateral prefrontal cortex. But even knowing this, the first cause of the placebo effect, the thing that initially gives rise to the stimulation of those brain regions, still isn't clear. The full mechanism of the placebo effect between the first expectation of getting better and actually getting better isn't scientifically understood. I spoke to John Forrester at the History and Philosophy of Science Department at the University of Cambridge about other factors involved in the placebo effect. One of the peculiar things about the statistical evidence about the placebo effect is an extraordinary range of variation between 18% to 75%, partly dependent on condition, but it seems to be dependent on geographical location. You know, this complicates the, the study of the placebo effect, but in a sense is what you might expect if it's not just neurochemical, it's not just psychological, but in some sense it's a social condition. There's a a complicated social production of the placebo effect, which is the, the next obvious thing to say, is the placebo effect really has to be the relationship not only of the patient to the doctor, but of the patient to the doctor's coat, to the kind of equipment the doctor has in the office, to the kind of hospital that they're entering into, to the reputation of the hospital. 
that that is going to be part of what we call the placebo effect. It's going to be bound up in it. You, you don't want to restrict yourself immediately to saying it's neuroscientific or psychological or sociological because it's a very complicated creature. So social and cultural factors, for example, public attitude towards the medical profession in a certain geographical area, influence the patient's expectations of what will happen to them. In turn, this expectation translates into a real change in symptoms. This means people's values, beliefs and prejudices can partly determine the outcome of their condition. If the placebo effect is so prevalent and so powerful, is this something doctors can exploit to benefit their patients? If a sugar pill is much cheaper than an active painkiller and just as effective, and may also avoid some nasty side effects, what's stopping the doctor using the placebo? One of the main problems is the element of deception. Lying to patients is obviously a bad thing and leads to endless legal battles and public mistrust in the medical profession. But can the power of the placebo effect be used in an honest and non-deceptive way? Medical philosopher Shane Glacken at the University of Exeter believes so. So usually the formulation a doctor would use in recommending a placebo treatment is something like, well, I'm going to give you these pills or I'm going to give you this shot. We don't really know how exactly it works, but it's been very effective in relieving pain or for people in your situation, and I'm confident that it's going to be effective in your case. Now, it doesn't seem to me that anything relevant is being left out there. And to add one last twist to the story, placebo treatments can even have an effect when the patient knows all about them. Interestingly enough, there are at least two studies that show placebos tend to work even when the patient knows that there is a placebo. I think there's a Park and Covey study from the 60s. There's a more recent one done in the Harvard Medical School. You can tell people this, this has no pharmacological effect. It's just a sugar pill, but it will make you feel better. And, and it does tend to work. So a doctor can be completely open about placebos and they'll still do the trick, although they tend to be less effective if given this way. With an increasing knowledge of the neuroscience behind the placebo effect to back up subjective reports, and with an appreciation of the social and cultural influences on this phenomenon, perhaps an ethically sound way of using placebo treatments more widely in clinical practice isn't such a stretch of the imagination. Martha, thank you very much. Now, our guests this week are Barry Smith from the University of London and also Duncan Carmichael from Edinburgh University. We're talking tricks of the mind and we're answering the questions that you have sent in via the Naked Scientist website, nakedscientist.com, also by email chris at thenakedscientist.com, uh, Twitter at Naked Scientist. We'll kick off with one for you, Barry. Pekka Oilinki has written on our Facebook page, how do we learn to like new tastes and smells? I used to hate the king of the fruits, a durian, but after a few years of learning how it smells and tastes, it's just incredibly good. So please get some durian in the studio, uh, they go on to say, and let's see your reaction to it. No, I don't think we will, actually, but it's banned, I, I think. I, I think it's banned to have it indoors. It so this is like this rotten, is a, a rotten flesh, yes, doesn't it? This is a very, very stinky fruit. But, of course, once you put it in your mouth, as we talked about earlier, the taste is actually very nice because the brain is handling the aroma coming up from the, the mouth to the nose differently and projecting to slightly different cortical regions than it does when you smell it from the outside. Now, of course, what the brain does is it learns. There's an association between the prediction of that lovely reward of flavour and eventually tunes out 
to find it so disgusting to smell this funny smell. It, it, it's leading you to the right thing, but you're going to get the right reward. But what about change of, of taste and, and so on with, with age? Because Heather Andrews has also got in touch, nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, and said, is it true that our taste buds change as we age? Because some people like things more when they're older than when they're younger. So our taste buds don't really change, although the um, the smell diminishes as we get older. It, it actually can be improved right up until 50, 60, and then it drops right off. But but think of one reason why children don't like bitter taste, green vegetables, and it's very difficult to get them to eat it. But eventually, when they become a, of a certain age, they integrate the taste, touch, and smell, so they get a combined flavor rather than a single blast of bitterness. And that's what allows them, I think, to eat vegetables. Oh, that's fascinating. So the kids, when they're experiencing taste, are literally experiencing it one-dimensionally, the taste taste or the smell or whatever. And the smell, whereas we're actually getting something that combines the two. The whole experience. Martha? There's a question for Duncan Carmichael from Android Neox on Second Life. And uh, Android Neox says, is there a way to train the brain out of synesthesia? Um, Well, that's an interesting point. I think it's definitely possible to kind of modify your experiences. There's anecdotal evidence to suggest that this kind of strength of the synesthetic experience does fade over time. Um, it's commonly thought to be a kind of developmental thing. So so there is evidence that it changes over the course of the lifespan. But I think it is possible to kind of actively modify what you do experience when I mean, the brain's incredibly plastic. Um, there is, I mean, I had an anecdotal report from a synesthete who used mathematics as part of the job in everyday life. And he found that having coloured numbers was a, a a very good benefit kind of for his work whereas coloured letters didn't really seem to kind of lend any any advantage and over the course of time the strength of his associations with colour and letters tended to fade away so I think I think it is possible to modify experience I'm not entirely sure if you could get rid of it entirely Barry what do you think well, there's, there's some work coming out of Royko and Kadosh's lab in Oxford suggesting that under hypnosis, uh, synesthesia or the experience of the extra sensory uh, phenomenon disappears. It's also possible to induce it under um, uh, hypnosis too. And we know that hypnosis is something that you're either susceptible to or not genetically. So there is uh, a limited class of people who could turn it off. This one in from Connor in Tillingham. I've never had um, any sense of smell whatsoever. My wife has a good sense of smell. Quite often we totally agree that something tastes absolutely delicious and sometimes we violently disagree. I'd like to know, actually, uh, because I don't have a sense of smell, am I actually arguing with a disadvantage? Thank you very much. Yes, definitely arguing with a disadvantage. It means that things that have salt or sour flavours or bitter flavours, you will be more sensitive to, perhaps, than she is. Uh, And the other thing that's going to matter is that people who are used to having both, when they lose their sense of smell, they actually believe they can't taste anything. A good medic will test them. Salt, sweet, sour, bitter. Yes, you've still got those. But uh, if you're getting them by themselves without smell, then they'll be doing all of the work. So you'll want very tasty food. And uh, Duncan, one very last quick question uh, from Kevin Hoover on Facebook, who says, how do psychedelic drugs generate synesthetic experiences, such as seeing the colours of music? Well, we don't know exactly how that occurs, but we we do know that it does occur. Um, it also can occur through brain accident or injury as well. Um, I think it's an unknown question, really. I mean, what we don't know is if it's the same mechanism or whether it's a completely different mechanism. What we do know is it, it can occur through, you know, taking LSD or acid that people do indeed experience something very similar to uh, to synesthesia. So there you go. If you want to know what it's like, you have to take some LSD.
Don't do that. Not a good idea. Now, switching specifically to tricks of mind and the memory, here's Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. This week, we conjure up a conundrum from... Now, what was his name? My name is David, and I live in Paris. I have a terrible memory when it comes to remembering people's names to the point that I can be introduced to somebody and forget their name immediately afterwards. Can you explain why? Thank you. So, why is it that we can be so good at forgetting names? My name is Dr. Bernard Starcina, and I investigate the mechanisms of human memory at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge. Names are quite arbitrary and abstract labels, so it's very challenging to link a person and a name in any meaningful way. And this is a problem because we know from our research that new information is much better learned if it can be integrated into a pre-existing knowledge, also known as a schema. For example, if you're an expert in wine and you're introduced to a new bottle of wine, it will be easier for you to remember, let's say, the name and vintage of that wine than for a person who knows little about wines. And this is simply because you will automatically integrate a new wine into your internal wine database and make cross-links to other wines you know. This act of embedding incoming information into an existing schema is called semantic elaboration. And that's known to greatly boost our ability to remember new information. And where is this semantic elaboration happening? The prefrontal cortex, just behind your forehead, acts as director, drawing on information from across your brain. So, can we use this knowledge to help us remember somebody's name? Back to Bernard. Now, with names, given that there are arbitrary labels, it's much more difficult to use this semantic elaboration. That said, one effective strategy to make names more memorable is to try to somehow make sense of them. For instance, if you're at a party and the first person you meet is called Andrew, you could mentally emphasize the fact that he was the very first person you met at the party and make a cross-link to the alphabet, where the first entry is the letter A. You'll see that this very act of semantic elaboration will make Andrew's name more memorable to you. It's just like tying a knot in your handkerchief. There is also the commonly used trick of conjuring up an image of the person you've just met in order to remember their name. Again, activating the prefrontal cortex and hippocampus using semantic elaboration to get the memory to stick. So, for example, when I first met Chris, I imagined him naked, holding a big microphone in one hand, and in the other hand, a blacksmith's anvil. I brand-stamped his name, Chris Smith, across his naked chest, and his name stuck. But why is it that we need to come up with such devices in order to remember what people are called? As well as names being arbitrary, when we first meet someone, we're busily engaged in social etiquette. And so sometimes that's why it's tricky to concurrently take in the name and store it to memory. Sticking with the themes of interaction, next week we find out if there could ever be a real-life Dr Doolittle. Hi, my name is Hannah Hockley and I'm from Bristol and I wondered... Will we ever be able to have a conversation with animals? What do you think? Let us know by posting on the Naked Scientists Facebook page, tweeting at Naked Scientists, or joining in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum.
Hannah Critchlow, well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much for listening, and do keep, please, sending in your comments and questions. You can write to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists. Don't forget, we're also running our survey. This is where you can tell us what you think we do well and what we do badly and what you would like us to do more of. And as an added bonus, if you fill in the survey, then your name goes in the hat and you could win yourself... £10 or your local currency equivalents worth of Amazon vouchers. You go to nakedscientist.com slash survey and you have until 12, 12, 12 to enter. Next week, we're going to be looking at the science of hearing. We'll find out what life sounds like for people who are having to wear hearing aids. We'll ask whether you can cure tinnitus and also how you tell where sounds are coming from in the first place. If you have any questions on that, then do send them in. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you to our guests this week, Barry Smith, Duncan Carmichael, Stephen Kingsmore, and our production team, Hannah Critchlow, Martha Henriquez, Alan Boyd, and Ben Vausler. Until next time, thanks for listening, and goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more information... Look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.